0: If you were going to summarize Christianity in one word, and let me qualify that. If you are going to summarize Christianity in one word without saying Jesus, how would you summarize Christianity in one word? Love. Well done. Love. <laughs> Christianity is uniquely a religion of love. But other religions, philosophies, thought movements call us to love. So what makes Christianity unique in our approach to love? The uniqueness is found in our passage this morning where Jesus says, love your enemies. This is what makes our approach to love altogether different than any other religion or thought movement in the world. Now, our passage today is the last of six examples that Jesus has given us in the Sermon on the Mount, pushing God's law from external behavior modification to the inner lives of our hearts. And Jesus has done this with anger. He's done this with lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation. And he takes those laws and he says, here's how they actually apply to your innermost being. Because God, he doesn't want you to just play the part. He wants you to actually become the part. And so it makes sense that his last example then is love. Paul says that if we have not love, we have nothing. And yet in this last example, it seems like Jesus goes a little too far. Love is hard enough, but loving our enemies, is that just some hopeless ideal? And so this morning, I want to reflect on three things. Human love, God's love, and teleos, which we'll unpack later. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't own a Bible, take one of our church Bibles home with you. Even that giant one right there, it's yours. We'd love for you to have it. Everything will be on the screen behind me. Jesus says this. You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So let's begin with our first point human love. And I want to start by clarifying something. Nowhere in Scripture has it been said to hate our enemies. Now, there are passages that can be interpreted this way. For example, if you go to the Psalter and you read some of the Psalms and you see the ways they pray and talk about their enemies, you might think, okay, there's permission to hate our enemies. And yet, nowhere is there an explicit command in the Old Testament or New for us to hate our enemies. But if it's not a command, why does Jesus say, you've heard it said, hate your enemy? Because for all the other five examples, when he says, you've heard it said, He points to a command in the scriptures. Now, once again, Jesus is critiquing the way that the Pharisees and the scribes approached religion. And the common folk theology of their day was that a neighbor just meant an Israelite. You were only responsible to love Jews. Everyone else could be an enemy if you so choose. But as one scholar says, loving those we like and hating those we don't like, Is as common as skin. Hating our enemy is as common as the skin that we wear. This was true for the religious elites of Jesus' day, and it remains true of the condition of the human heart in this room this morning. Jesus is acknowledging that even though it's not a command, hate your enemy, we live as if it is. However, Love your neighbor as yourself is a command, and it's no new command. It's in Leviticus, and many rabbis, including Jesus, called it the second greatest command of all the scriptures. And we might nod our heads and say, yes, this is a good command, but we want some specifics. More specifically, who's our neighbor? Who are we responsible to love? You know we want to draw a circle, and we want to know who's in and who's out, who's the neighbor and who's the stranger and who's the enemy. We want to draw that circle in classification. And, and this happens in Luke's gospel. When Jesus had said that the loving God with all that you have and loving your neighbor as yourself summarizes all of God's law, a lawyer piped up and said, "Well, who's my neighbor?" And then Jesus tells the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. And the crowd starts to get nervous as they anticipate where he's going with this. Because Jesus doesn't just expand the circle. He doesn't just say, oh, more people fit in here than you thought. He erases the circle. Because the point of the parable is this. Your neighbor is a Samaritan. During the time of the Jews, uh, ancient Israel, sorry, the Jews and the Samaritans, were anything but friends or brothers and sisters. They had nothing to do with each other. There were deep-seated religious and racial animosities. So the people listening to Jesus tell this parable of the Good Samaritan would have heard him say to them, your neighbor includes your enemy. So in our passage, it turns out Jesus isn't teaching two commands. He's not teaching us to love our neighbor and also another command— love your enemy. He's saying there's one command, love your neighbor, even if your neighbor is an enemy. You see, God does not want us to draw a circle around who is worthy of our love and who is unworthy of our love. But if we're honest, it's hard enough for us to love the people we love the most. I can tell by looking at you, some of you had a rough drive to church this morning, and it is hard to love the people you love the most. It's hard to love our extended family, our weird aunts and uncles, or our friends who constantly post obnoxious political opinions to social media. You know who you are. It's hard enough to love our neighbors, let alone our annoying neighbors. Or any neighbor, because in this day and age, we don't even know our neighbors. I can't even love my neighbor. How can I love an enemy? Loving our enemies. Love is challenging enough. It's hard enough to love the ones we love. And by definition, an enemy is the opposite of lovable. It's an unlovable person. But when we push love to this extreme, when we push love toward even our enemies, it unveils something about human love. There are conditions and limits to our love. We love those who love us. We love those who are like us. We love those who reciprocate our love. We love those we're required to love like family. And we might even love when it's not easy because we're committed to love. But then Jesus goes on to say in verses 46 through 47. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And this would have ruffled the feathers of the Pharisees because essentially they're saying that in their religiosity, they only love those who are like them. And as a result, they're no different than the people they're trying to distinguish themselves from. Jesus says, look, the people you despise the most, tax collectors, Gentiles, your enemies, they love in the exact same way you love. So in all your religious show, in all the ways you exclude your enemies and define them as enemies, you are actually exactly like them. You are still living as if that is the greatest form of love available to you. You've missed it. You're living with conditions and limits but this should ruffle our feathers, I think. Because this is how the human heart works. We want to draw that circle. We want to know who's in and who's out. Now, as a Christian, we might say, okay, I'll make that circle a little bit bigger and a little more uncomfortable. And yet Jesus says, we got to erase it. So what are we supposed to do? When I was in elementary school, I had an arch nemesis. And that might sound melodramatic, but so be it. And uh, my arch nemesis and I fought and bickered relentlessly, you know, he attacked me with a ruler, I spat on him, you know, usual childhood stuff. And at a certain point, our battle got so bad and ferocious that my mom decided, you know what, I'm gonna put an end to this. And so after a particularly bad battle, she forced me to go to my arch nemesis's house. And we rang the doorbell to his lair and in front (laughs) of his parents, I was told to shake his hand and bury the grudge. So I did it put my hand out, shook his evil little hand, and we made our peace. But my mom couldn't force me to love him. You see, we no longer showed our disdain for for one another from that point on, but we were still people who didn't like one another deep down. You see, you can't force someone to love someone. And you can't force someone to love an enemy. It just doesn't work. And I don't think this is what Jesus has in mind when he says, love your enemies. Jesus doesn't want us to appear like we love our enemies when deep down we're seething with disdain. Because let's remember the whole point of this section of the Sermon on the Mount is to take God's laws and oppress them deeper, apply them to our hearts. Jesus doesn't want us to feign love of enemy. He actually wants us to love our enemies. And so I think it's important to qualify this a bit. Jesus isn't asking us to conjure up feelings and emotions of love that we might feel towards friends and families. Now, those feelings might come over time toward your enemies should you try to love them. But in this passage, Jesus is challenging us to embrace a very specific form of love, agape. And I like the way William Barclay goes about defining agape. He writes, the real meaning of agape is unconquerable benevolence and invincible goodwill. The real meaning of agape love is unconquerable benevolence and invincible goodwill. Barclay goes on to say this, If we regard a person with agape, it means that no matter what, no matter what that person does to us, no matter how they treat us, no matter if they insult us or injure us or grieve us, We will never allow any bitterness against them to invade our hearts, but we will regard them with that unconquerable benevolence and goodwill, which will seek nothing but their highest good. So Jesus isn't calling us to feel love toward our enemies in the same way we would feel love towards those closest to us. That may happen. But no matter how we feel, he's saying you can still choose to love with unconquerable benevolence and invincible goodwill that you can actually seek the highest good of your enemy. Or so says Jesus. And hopefully it's clear at this point. Jesus is calling us to a much greater form of love than human love alone. So let's move on to our second point, God's love. When Jesus invites us to love our enemies to love those who do not love us. He's not just offering up some tweetable phase or some, you know, pragmatic wisdom. This kind of love is supposed to be a reflection of God's character. Jesus says, "'But I say to you, love your enemies "'and pray for those who persecute you, "'so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. "'For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you could be God for a day, is that how you would behave? Like, personally, I might do a little more smiting. I might make the sun unbearably hot for the evil, and I might let the rains cause floods for the unjust. I might gather up dictators and their henchmen and do away with them. I might channel that inner Samuel L. Jackson from Pulp Fiction, you know, and you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. If you could be God for a day, anyone would do a little more smiting or am I all alone here? And if, if that's at work in your heart, as it is in mine, it shows something. We think... People should get what they deserve. Good people should be blessed. Bad people should be cursed. And if we believe that, we functionally have subscribed to karma. We've embraced the way of human love and we only love those who love us and we think people should only be rewarded if they are like us, if they are good. But it turns out this is not how God operates. Human love has conditions and limits, but God's love is unconditional and unlimited. God even loves his enemies. And he shows mercy and kindness even to the evil and the unjust. And the point isn't that God is somehow indifferent to evil and injustice. The point is that God shows mercy and kindness even towards his enemies because in his love for all people, in his love that knows no bounds, God wants every single person to be reconciled to himself. The Apostle Paul said, Do you not realize that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So God shows kindness. He shows mercy, even love toward his enemies, not because they're off the hook, not because he's winking at the evil they're doing, but because he wants them to have an opportunity to repent. He wants them to be saved. He wants them to discover the truth. And so in his love, he is kind toward them so they have that opportunity. So the logic of this passage is really straightforward. If you're truly children of your heavenly father, you will be like him. You will love your enemy and you'll pray for those who persecute you. If you know God, you will become like him. You'll erase the circle and embrace the unconditional and unlimited love of God. But even if you know God, even if you know this command, it makes for a great slogan, but it is really hard to put into practice. Loving your enemy sounds great until you have to do it. When I was working on my undergraduate degree, I had a significant and ongoing conflict with one of my professors. And for whatever reason, he did not like me. Can you imagine that, someone not liking me? But it got so bad that the academic dean had to get involved because he would walk behind my chair and kick it, he would stand in front of the class and ridicule me by name in front of the entire class, and it just kept escalating, and so the dean had to get involved. And at this point in my faith, I had not yet been a Christian a year, and I was still finding my bearings. And I was fortunate because my friend Jen started this lunchtime Bible study because I think she thought I was a lost cause because I was. And so a few weeks into this little Bible study, Jen said, hey, what can we pray for? Normal Bible study question. I thought, great. Uh, Could you pray uh, for me and what I'm facing with this professor? So Jen prayed for me. And then after she said, Alistair, how about you pray now for Mr. So and So? And I said, "You're not my mom. Like this doesn't work. Loving our enemies doesn't work. What are you talking about?" But in, a, you know, I swallowed that disdain. I was put on the spot, and so I prayed the weakest prayer of my Christian life. That went something like, "God, change Mr. So and So. Amen." The end. Praying for my enemy in that moment felt like the least natural thing to do. Love your enemy sounds good until you have to do it. And even something as simple as praying for an enemy goes against the grain. And yet that prayer created a crack in my heart and it opened up enough space for the light to make its way through. And over time I sincerely started to desire the highest good of this professor. But it is also hard to imagine how this exhortation would have sounded to an ancient Israelite. Persecution wasn't some abstract concept for them. They lived under Roman occupation. They knew very well that they could be persecuted by their enemies. Love my enemies, pray for those who persecute me, hard pass. You And part of us wants to say pass. And yet countless Christians throughout the centuries, and even around the world today, have faced persecution, and have chosen this path of love, and even prayed for their enemies. Daryl Davis is an accomplished American R&B and blues musician. He's played with the likes of Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis. But over recent years, he's not become famous for his music. He's well known because he's an African-American man who's spent the last three and a half decades Actively befriending members of the KKK. And over this time, he's persuaded over 200 Klansmen to give up their robes, to leave behind their hate. And, and Darryl Davis keeps all of these robes as a display in his home of the power that love has over even hate. And he's convinced that if you sit down with your enemy, you can find common ground. And from there, you can begin to dismantle hate. But he says he's only able to do this, not because he's such a great person, but because he depends on Christ's power at work in and through him to sustain him in loving those who would be his enemy. He's seeking his enemy's highest good. Loving your enemy is possible, but it's also not possible without a key ingredient, truth. Because God's love is married to truth. In our culture, love commonly means uncritically accepting somebody and embracing who they are without any question, full stop. Love is love. And that's a fine slogan for human love. But it's a far cry from the unlimited and unconditional love of God, When God's love is at work, it speaks the truth. Throughout this passage, God says, there are enemies. God will name what is wrong. Daryl Davis can't love a KKK member without naming the wrong in their lives at some point. Love must speak the truth. It speaks to what is wrong, but it does so not to make a point, but to make a difference. It does so to call someone to their highest good. Love without truth is just sentimentalism. You see, love is love is not enough for the Christian. Love is God revealing who he is in Christ crucified and demonstrating his love for us there on the cross. That is our working definition of love. And so the love that we have toward our enemies is not human love. It's not some sentimental or rational love. It's none other than perfect love. The perfect love of God that the Apostle John says casts out all fear, even fear of our enemies. But this command to love our enemies is pretty daunting, right? I'm feeling woefully incapable. Anybody else? Love your enemies. And Jesus knows he's making us sweat a little, but he wants us to go into a full-blown panic because he concludes in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus is restating a command in the Old Testament that's also repeated elsewhere in the New Testament be holy because the Lord your God is holy. To love like God loves is already a tall order. To love our enemies like God loves his enemies is even a taller order. But to be perfect and holy as God is perfect and holy, who is capable of that? Who can live up to that standard? Unfortunately, perfect isn't the greatest translation of the Greek word teleos. So, our final point. Telios. What Jesus actually says here is be telios, as your heavenly father is teleos. So let me try to explain what that word means. A thing is perfect or in the Greek teleos if it fully realizes its purpose. A thing is teleos if it fully realizes its purpose. The purpose for which it was planned, designed and made. Let's take a simple analogy. Suppose in my house, there's a screw loose. And any of you who know me, there's a few screw looses. But uh, let's say you want to tighten and adjust this screw. And so you go out to Home Depot and you buy a screwdriver. And I find that this screwdriver fits my hand just perfectly. It's neither too small or too large, neither too rough or too smooth. It is like the perfect porridge from that children's story that I'm forgetting the name of right now. And so I take this screwdriver that fits perfectly within my hand, and I place it within the screw, and it turns out I got the right shape, and it fits perfectly, and I tighten the screw, and it is done. The screwdriver is teleos, because it exactly fulfilled the purpose for which I desired and bought it. In the same way, a person is teleos if they fulfill the purpose for which they were created. You're teleos if you fulfill the purpose for which you were created. We are all made in the image of God. And our purpose is to receive the agape love of God the Father and to reflect his love out into the world. That's it. That's your teleos. That's your purpose. That's your God-given purpose. When we love as our heavenly father has loved us, then we are being perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. So when Jesus says, be teleos as your heavenly father is teleos, he's not saying be morally perfect. None of us could do that. He's not saying have no shortcomings. Rather, he's inviting us to step into the recovery of our true purpose as humans. That although sin has ruined and marred the image of God in us, should we come to him for healing, we can reconnect with that ultimate purpose to receive God's agape love so that we can show it to the world. And this last verse, verse 48, be perfect. It's actually the capstone of this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount. It concludes the train of thought Jesus began in verse 13 and ends here in verse 48. It summarizes these six different examples Jesus has given us. And it gives us a picture of how God is telehas. The true nature of who God is. These six examples show us God does not murder, but is forgiving. God is faithful to his marriage covenant. God is honest and keeps his oaths. God forgives and even gives to those who dishonor him. And God loves even his enemies. This is whose image we bear. This is who God invites us to become. God does not just want us to put on an act, but actually become like him. So if we want to love as God has loved us, if we want to love as God has loved the world, what do we do? Well, first, I think we have to name our enemies. Now, at first you might think, well, I don't have any enemies. That's a little dramatic. Because you know we're all multicultural Canadians and we tend to view ourselves as embracing and accepting of people who are different. We don't tend to see entire people groups as our enemies unless they're Republicans. But just because we don't have a people group like the Samaritans or Romans to consider enemies, that doesn't mean we don't view people as enemies. For those of you who are more liberally inclined in your politics, how do you feel toward the alt-right? For those of you who are more conservative in your politics, how do you feel toward progressives? When someone deeply disagrees with you over an issue that you have strong convictions about, and I'm not talking about middle ground issues, I'm talking about right and wrong issues, where you know in the depths of your being they're wrong. In that disagreement, how do you begin to view them? Does their ability to reason and come to different conclusions than you cause suspicion and cause you to tear down their character and begin labeling them with phrases that distance them from you? This is the way of the world. It doesn't matter what your political inclination is. It tends to set you up to view other people as your enemy, even if we don't use words that harsh. It's no wonder our political discourse has descended to the rhetoric it now embodies. Because we're after too small a vision of love. So if we're going to love as God loves, we have to admit that our love is deficient and we must name our enemies. And the second step is we pray for our enemies. That is the only action point in this passage that Jesus gives to us. Pray for those who persecute you. Because if you are going to actually pray for an enemy and bring them before God, you might express your frustration. You might get it all out there before God and it might be ugly. It might be uncomfortable like the Psalms. But ultimately, if you're going to bring your enemy before the Lord of the universe, you are going to pray for their highest good. You might pray for their conversion, that their eyes might be opened to who God is. You might pray for repentance. You might pray for a change of heart. You might pray for them to get out of the delusion they're in or out of sin, whatever it is. You're ultimately bringing your enemy before God and asking for their highest good. And this is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. When those who said he was an enemy crucified him, he prayed, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And that's what the first martyr of the church, Stephen, did as he was being stoned to death. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And we can only do this if we know the words of the Apostle Paul for ourselves the words that he wrote to the Romans in chapter 5 of that epistle. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Loving our enemies is not possible through human love. Loving our enemies is only possible through God's love. It's only possible when you know God's love for you at your worst. Paul uses words like ungodly and sinner and enemy, which aren't usually how we tend to define ourselves. But what he's trying to say is at your most unloveliest point, at your lowest point, at your most fragile point, at your worst of the worst God loved you even there and died for you even there even when you were an enemy and running away from God. He loved you and pursued you and sought to reconcile you in the death of his son. He did not die so he could love you. He died because he loves you. And when you know that God loved you as an enemy, that's why you go and you love your enemies. That's why we embrace the enemy love of God. Because we ourselves have been the enemy. And we know that the love of God can change even an enemy's heart.